0: Good to see everyone this morning. Could you turn to John chapter 3, just to be ready for our passage this morning. John chapter 3, we'll be reading from uh, verses 22 to 36. And I just want to cover a couple of housekeeping items here this morning. Uh, First is family commitment. We I uh, really wanted to get as many of these back as possible by the end of this month. So a few things here. If you are ready to sign, please sign today. Now, we know what happens. Uh, you took it home. The dog ate it. You don't know where it is. And uh, every week, we've actually had copies of these. And I have one right here. So at the end of the service, those tables where your communion cups were, we're going to have stacks of these. So if for you, the problem is that you just can't remember where you put it or you don't have a copy. In fact, I got one right here. So if you know you're going to walk out of here and forget, come up right now and get this one, please. (laughs) Anyone? All right, so don't forget, if you're ready to sign, please sign today. If you haven't taken the time to actually read through this, uh, we, we want you to realize we are calling us as a church to follow Christ. It's not about us, it's not about our church and what we want to do. It's about following Jesus. That's what we're attempting to do here. This is a way of unifying us as a church. This is what some churches would call their membership process. Um, So we want everyone to take this seriously. If you are not ready to sign, you've read through it, you're not sure about this, you have questions or concerns, would you please, as we've been asking, reach out to one of the elders this week. So as of this week, everyone should have either submitted one or reached out to the elders with your questions or concerns about this. Please, please follow up on it. Thank you for so many of you who have. And we know there are many others from the survey. We know many of you said that you're planning to sign it. You just haven't done it yet. So hopefully, hopefully today. Um, because of the lunch today, elders are going to be over here in the lounge area uh, near the info center. So you can bring your forms there. Or if you need to chat with one of us, uh, hopefully we'll have our name tags on and we will be ready to meet with you there. I just want to remind you of something that we presented last month when we presented the family commitment, and that is this statement. Everyone is welcome at WBC, but full participation will require affirming the family commitment. Now, as elders, we know that we haven't actually spelled out what that means, and that's something that we are talking and praying about, uh, but that will come in future weeks. For now, we are hopeful that everyone will take the time to read through this and commit themselves to following Christ here. And I just want to add my uh, plug for the Spiritual Disciplines class. One of the things that we saw in the survey is many of us, including me, uh, have been quite honest about the fact that there's areas of the Christian life where we would like to grow. And that's exactly what this course is about. I don't know if you ever noticed, but the word disciplines is a lot like the word disciple, which is a word we talk a lot about, following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, and disciplines are one of the ways in which we grow as disciples. So if you're like me, I just signed up for this course. Uh, If if, if this is an area that you know you could use some help in, if you're not part of a small group, I hope that you'll uh, really consider this course. starts on Wednesday night. We'd like everyone to be signed up by today. So, John chapter 3, 22 to 36, and the message title today is Jesus... Above all, John chapter three verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also, John the Baptist, that is, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John the Baptist was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John the Baptist's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, they're talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John the Baptist replied. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And now the chapter finishes with, with what I believe are some of John the Apostle's comments as the writer of this gospel. The one who comes from above is above all. He's talking about Jesus here. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus above all us to see uh, from three angles here, and I see I uh, didn't get my animation quite right here, but number one, three reasons why Jesus is above all from this passage. Number one is his invitation. So our, our passage here begins with kind of a weird scenario. We, we got some disciples of, G, of John the Baptist coming to him and, and saying, hey, Jesus, that guy you were talking about, he's baptizing. I, th- I thought you were John the Baptist. But now Jesus is baptizing and a whole bunch of people who used to follow you are following him. And notice how this kind of, this argument, this issue arose. It arose because there was some Jewish guy who got into a discussion or an argument, verse 25, with some of John the Baptist's disciples. That was kind of weird. It tells us that there was this argument, and then immediately from that argument with some Jewish guy, John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, hey, what's Jesus doing? He's taking away our people. So what is going on here? So the first thing we read, as we've seen here, verse 22, is the reality that Jesus, as part of his ministry, and many of us don't take the time to consider this, but Jesus baptized. And his baptism began with his own baptism. You might remember that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. His job was to turn the hearts of the Jewish people back to God in preparation for their Messiah coming, which was Jesus. Then Jesus comes along and he gets baptized by John, but Jesus didn't get baptized for repentance. He had nothing to repent for. He was the perfect son of God. Jesus was baptized to initiate and begin a new community of God's people, all of whom would, who, who would follow him and who would trust in him and who would become his disciples would likewise be baptized, not with the John Baptist baptism, but with the baptism of Jesus, to join themselves to the community of God's people that Jesus began. So Jesus was baptized to inaugurate that community, to be the beginning of it, to identify with all who would come to him after the fact. And then all of us, all of his followers, get baptized Uh, into that community just as Jesus did. So we can imagine John the Baptist's disciples here feeling very insecure because they had joined themselves to John the Baptist and John the Baptist was quite famous and crowds of people had been coming to him but now they see the crowds dwindling. And then they hear, and I wonder if the Jewish guy is like, so what's with all this baptism stuff? Because the Jewish people had their own forms of baptism, or we could call it washings. So if if you're honest, if you can go back into the Old Testament, uh, go to Bible Gateway and look up the word water, for example, or wash. And you'll see in the Old Testament law, there are a number of places where God, in his law, stipulated types of washings. There was washings that the priests had to do, and there were other washings that everyone had to do. If, if there was an illness or a sickness or a disease, there, there might be washings that would take place after that. So in the Old Testament, there were some washings. But then what happened in the time of Jesus is the Pharisees had come on the scene, very religious men, and they had created a whole bunch of new washings, because the, the law of God wasn't enough. And, and they were so intent on being so holy and essentially what they were wanting to do is earn their standing with God so one way to do that is we'll add more washings we'll show you how holy we can be we'll wash our way there and so what's interesting is in chapter 2 do you remember this? Jesus turns water into wine where does he do that? what were the containers Jesus used to turn water into wine? ceremonial washing pots those were not pots that had anything to do with the Old Testament law. They were pots that had everything to do with this new legalistic law that the Pharisees had come up with, because we can wash our way into a right standing with God. That's what religion does, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe you're here today, and, and you've been in a system of religion, if you're honest, in which it was your responsibility to wash your way into a right standing with God. And maybe that's through a ceremony, maybe that's through uh, rules, maybe that's through uh, good deeds. There's all kinds of ways that religion tries to get us cleaned up for God. But of course Jesus was calling people out of the washings of Judaism, of Israel. The ones that were in the Old Testament were God's law. They were true, they were right, but they all pointed forward to a time when Jesus would come and provide true cleansing of the heart and soul. So Jesus was calling people out of Judaism. It wasn't wrong, it wasn't bad, but he's calling them out into a new kind of people of God that that Israel was meant to point to and ultimately become through their Messiah. And the same thing was happening with John the Baptist's baptism. As we've said, John the Baptist was sent from God. He had a ministry from God. It was a crucial ministry to prepare the hearts of Israel for their Messiah. But his ministry was not permanent. And I'm already getting behind in my points here. John's baptism was a temporary baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. And it was very soon to be out of date. Do you notice what it said here about John? It says in parentheses in my Bible verse 24 this was before John was put in prison God in his sovereignty had a very specific way of bringing an end date to the baptism ministry of John the Baptist you know how he did that had John put in prison there was an expiry date on John's baptism it was temporary and John, because of his bold preaching, and his preaching was, he, he had one sermon, some people say, John only had one sermon. Every Sunday morning, probably every day, he'd stand up and say the same thing. Same sermon, repent. And he was even bold enough to say that to Herod, this king of Israel, a puppet king of Israel, set up by the Roman Empire, Herod, who was sleeping with his brother's wife. And John had the guts to say, even to Herod, You need to repent. So Herod puts John in prison. We think, oh no. Oh no. What's going to happen to God's plan? This was God's plan. John was put in prison to bring a clear expiry date to his ministry and to his baptism so that the whole point of it could be fulfilled in Jesus, who now was inaugurating and creating this new community of his people through his own baptism. Do you see that? The invitation of Jesus is above all. And the reality here is is that John's disciples, when they come to John and say, what's going on here? This guy's stealing our people. This guy's stealing our disciples. This guy's stealing our crowds. And essentially what John is going to say, leading up to that great phrase, he must become greater, I must become less, John is saying, exactly. That is exactly what is supposed to happen. And if we're honest, and I suspect John had this conversation with his disciples, do uh, you realize, boys, you need to go to him too. If they wanted to attach themselves to John the Baptist as their, as their savior, as their ultimate rabbi, John is going to say, no. I think this is exactly why we read so much about John the Baptist in the early chapters of John, because in the early Christian community, there were people who did not let go of John the Baptist. We know that from the book of Acts, where Paul comes to one town and he finds guys that who, who were still followers of John the Baptist. And when he explained to them the true gospel and explained to them about Jesus, they got rebaptized into the Christian, the true Christian community. His invitation is above all. So if you were a Jew in this day, just like the one who had this argument... Maybe the reason the argument started was because this Jew came to understand this Jesus guy is telling me that my Judaism, my Old Testament faith of Israel, is no longer adequate. That I got to go to him. I got to get baptized by him. And Jesus would say, "Exactly." These these disciples of John the Baptist. What do you, what do you mean? Like this, I, I thought John was the guy we needed, and Jesus is saying no. My invitation is above all. So here's the thing. Every one of us, as we sit here this morning, we all have a belief system of some kind, right? Some people call that a worldview. Every one of us, we have a belief system. We we get up in the morning with some kind of understanding of what life is about. A purpose that drives us to do the things that we do and say the things that we say. And whatever it is that you believe... You need to understand this, this is what the Bible proclaims and this is what we want to proclaim here at Wallenstein is, the invitation of Jesus is above all. And whatever you believe outside of the teaching of Jesus and of God's word, you need to realize it's obsolete, it's not right, it's not true, Jesus is calling you to find truth in him why in chapter 14 of this very gospel he will say those exact words to his own disciples I am the way the truth and the life and yeah I, I know it's politically incorrect folks I know it is but here at Wallenstein we're preaching this truth that what Jesus said is exactly true he is above all he is the only way that's why we say, it's, yeah, it's all for Christ. Jesus is above all because his, his invitation is above all. And so if you're here today and you, you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never joined yourself to his community by faith, hear these words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I really believe that every human need that we've ever experienced needs for meaning and community, needs needs for purpose, needs for forgiveness, and, 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 and everything that we need as a human being is actually truly fully found through the gospel of Jesus. So Jesus could boldly say, without apology, and we will echo his words, come to me, go to him, He is the way. He is the only way. Jesus is above all in his invitation. There's a second thing we see in this passage, and that is that Jesus is above all in his position. So John's disciples come to him, all concerned. You know, Jesus is baptizing more people than than we are. All the crowds are going to him. And John is going to give this reply. Now remember, what he's saying to his guys essentially is, Jesus is the one. He is the one you need to follow. And he says it in this way. Verse 27, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is that guy. Jesus, in his position, is the Christ, and if you were a Jewish person, that word would hit you way harder than it hits us. For us, if you've been around the Bible, it's a Bible word. But if you were a Jewish person and you heard that, that phrase, Christ, or Messiah, your whole faith is built on a hope that someday the Messiah is going to come and make everything right in the world. And John the Baptist is saying, that's Jesus. That's who he is. That is his title. That is his identity. He is the Christ, the long-hoped-for, prayed-for Messiah of Old Testament Israel. But he goes on, uses an analogy starting in verse 29. And he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. What's cool about this is we know from the rest of Scripture that When the Bible uses this analogy of Jesus being like a groom, a husband, and having a bride, do you know who the bride is? It's actually us. It's all the people who join themselves to his community, who by faith come to Christ and become children of God. This analogy describes us as his wife, his bride, his lover. And John here in this analogy says Jesus is the bridegroom Now we've all been to weddings. Uh, Many of us have maybe been in, have you ever been in a wedding party? Always a bridesmaid? Or, Or a best man, maybe you've been a best man. If you've ever been at a wedding or if you've ever been, especially if you've been in a wedding party, and just picture this for a moment, you're at a wedding and it's the processional begins. And, uh, and the gals are coming in, right? The girls, uh, the, the bride's wedding party is coming in. And as one girl enters, I mean, right away, you realize, oh, what's going on here? She got sunglasses on. And she's kind of dancing her way down the aisle. And wow, like, that's a pretty loud dress. And she's kind of loud and boisterous. And she's kind of making a scene, actually. What, what is going on here? And we would know right away something is desperately wrong because she's not the bride. It's not her day. It's not her party. It's not her wedding. And if we had the guts to say it, we'd tell her, sit down and shut up. It's not yours. Because at a wedding, what's really important is the bride and the bridegroom. And what John is saying here about Jesus is Jesus is the main event. And his disciples coming to John and saying, wait, wait, we can't let Jesus overtake us here. And what John is saying, you know what? I'm, I'm like the best man. I can't believe I got to be the best man. I can't believe I got to be the one to announce the coming of Jesus. I can't believe. But that's all I am. And so if, you, if you've ever been a best man at a wedding, you probably stood about right here and you kept your mouth shut and smiled. Right? That's your job. It's not about you that day, it's about the bride and the bridegroom. And so John is saying, I got to be the best man in this story, but I am not the main event. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is above all because of his position. He's the Christ. He's the bridegroom. And then notice in verse 31, the language that John begins to use here. Now John the Apostle, I believe, is writing his own commentary at the end of the chapter, he says the one who comes from above is above all. And who's he talking about? Well, he's still talking about Jesus. John actually hasn't given us much indication of the birth of Jesus or, or, or the fact that Jesus um, was born into the world in the ways that Matthew and Luke give us that story. But we know from John chapter 1, John is saying right from the beginning that Jesus is God So when Jesus comes into the world, he becomes a human being. He becomes a man and comes into our world as the divine one who's always been above because he's actually the one who made all things, John tells us. Jesus is above all because of his position. Hear these words. Let these words sink deep into your heart and mind. The one who comes from above is above all. Jesus is above all. Think of all the things that are happening in the world today with Russia and Ukraine and China and and everything else. Know this. Human leaders and authorities may rise up, may try to usurp the authority of God, but, but understand that ultimately Jesus is above all of that. King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules from heaven on a throne of sovereignty, nothing happens that is outside of his control. Your very life is in his hands. But the question we have to ask today as we're confronted with this truth about Jesus, is this phrase true of him in my life? Can I say that when it comes to my life, Jesus is above all? Because here's the thing, until Jesus is above all in your life, your life is out of order. You can't be truly human when the God who made you and the, and the Messiah who intends to save you until he sits on the throne of your life. Your life is out of order. It's like putting a trailer hitch on the front bumper. Just imagine that. How well would that go? Wouldn't go at all, wouldn't work. Until Jesus is above all in our life, we, we've got our bumper we've got our trailer hitch on the front bumper we, we've got things so out of order so John says no you need to understand Jesus the one who comes from above is above all he actually says it twice at the end of verse 31 he says the same thing except he says the one who comes from heaven is above all when you see the Bible writer saying the same thing twice back to back it's called emphasis don't miss this Is this true of you and me in our lives? Can it be said, can it be seen in our lives that Jesus is above all? Folks, I really hope that as you read the family commitment, you read this. This is what you see. I'm sure sure the devil wants to work in many of our hearts here and wants us to say, oh, these are just a bunch of rules. Church is trying to make me fall. No, what we're trying to, what what, 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 we want you to see is that Jesus is above all. We, we want you to commit to living a life in which Jesus sits on the throne of your life because that's what believers do. That's the way Christians live. Notice verse 34. The one whom God has sent, still speaking of Jesus, speaks the words of God. God. The one that God has sent speaks the words of God. I don't know if you've got the red letters in your Bible. But when's the last time you went through the Gospels and just absorbed the words of Jesus? Now, the whole Bible is the words of Christ, let's be honest. But when's the last time you read through the Gospels and listened to his words and absorbed them and said, this is the very word of God. When Jesus spoke, He was speaking God's word. When he spoke, it was scripture coming out of his mouth. He's above all because he speaks the word of God. Notice the same verse. Jesus not only speaks the uh, words of God, but he also gives the spirit without limit. God, through Jesus, through redemption, gives the Holy Spirit without limit. This is one of the things that when, when we don't have Jesus on the throne of our lives we don't have the Holy Spirit in our lives we're, we're all like empty shells in a sense that are meant to be You know, we're kind of like your flashlight with no batteries the pieces are all there but there's no energy this just doesn't work but when we become followers of Jesus he gives us the Holy Spirit who's like the divine empowerment that's meant to fuel and empower our lives as human beings then notice verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Everything are in the hands of Jesus. That includes you. It includes me. It includes what you own. It includes your circumstances. It includes your your children if you have them. It includes your, your vocation. Your, everything in the universe belongs to him and he holds it. The question is: do we submit Everything that is in our hand to the one who actually holds all things in his hand. Jesus is above all because of his position. There's one more reason why we need to see Jesus as being above all. He's above all because of his invitation, the one true invitation that all of us must respond to. He's above all because of his position, just because of who he is. You realize that if Jesus never lifted a finger to rescue the likes of us, it would still be right for us to gather in a building like this and sing praises to him just because of who he is. But of course, scripture gives us one more category, one more thing that should convince us that Jesus is above all, and it's because of his redemption. Really, in these final verses, this is kind of what John is describing. First describing Jesus as the one who's above all, then describing him as the one who brings the very words of God. Notice verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony, meaning human nature is to reject just like it happened in the, in the beginning with Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit. Human nature has always wanted to reject the word of God. Jesus comes bringing the word of God. And then verse 33, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. I, lo- I love this. When you hear the words of Christ, when you hear the words of, God, of the gospel, and you say, this is true what's actually happening in your life is that god is revealing himself to you and you are, are beginning to align your heart and mind with the very truth of god and the litmus test the thing that the, the hinge the, the the knife's edge that helps us recognize whether we're really embracing truth as god knows it and presents it is the way that we respond to jesus so in other words you could say oh i i believe in god I believe in being a good person. I believe in going to church. But if ultimately you reject this Jesus, who is the one who is above all, if you ultimately reject him, if you reject the redemption that he's offering you, then you've actually missed the truth of God. If you say, I believe in God, but you don't trust in Jesus, God says, then you don't really believe in me. You haven't heard me. You haven't understood me. Jesus brings us the words of God, and we often, the Bible often calls this the gospel, the good news. Jesus has come to preach the good news. There's one story early in the gospel of Luke where he's in one town, and... He goes out after a day of ministry. He spends the night praying to God. And in the morning, everyone in the town is looking for him. And so his disciples finally find him. Jesus, don't you realize everyone's looking for you? And his answer to them is, we we need to go to other towns also. We need to preach the gospel, he says, in other towns also. That is why I was sent. Some of the most beautiful words that come from Jesus Representing the heart of God are the words of the gospel, words of redemption, where he provides, explains, and provides for us the means by which we can be rescued from sin. And so we see this play out. We see it coming from the good news, the words of Jesus. We see it in him giving the Spirit without limit. And then we see it, especially in the last verse. Whoever believes in the Sun has eternal life. Notice the tense of that of that phrase. Whoever believes in the Son someday will have not what it says. And I think we read this verse wrongly because we think it's just this simple ticket idea that if I believe in Jesus, then I have a ticket now so that someday I can take the ultimate train ride, as the country singers would say, uh, to eternity in heaven. That's all it is. I, I believe, I get my ticket, someday I'll go to heaven for eternity. Not at all what John is saying in this verse whoever believes in the son has not just a ticket we already have eternal life because eternal life isn't just isn't just about being in eternity in some eternal home that's coming that's going to be absolutely amazing but what John is saying, that there is a quality of life. It's, I've already mentioned it. It's this idea that the Holy Spirit has been given through Christ. It's a quality of life that's actually the life of Jesus coming into us and indwelling us and making us alive. All we've got to do is go back to what, what we read last week when Mark uh, Hockley was here preaching to us. And we find Jesus talking to an old man saying, you got to be born again. What? I can't re-enter my mother's womb? No. He's talking about this new kind of life, this quality of life, where the very divine life of Jesus comes into you. It's called redemption. It is right for us to understand redemption as a kind of transaction in which I believe and I get forgiven. That's crucial. As far as the east is from the west, my sins are removed from me. It's right for us to understand forgiveness and even justification that God has made me right in his presence, in my standing before him, I'm made right. But to understand that as we come to Christ for redemption, as we come to him by faith, we already have eternal life. That is why our lives should change. As we follow Jesus on the discipleship path the very life of Jesus has come to indwell us to transform us. The genuine Christian life is a life of transformation. Why? Because the divine all powerful son of God has come to live inside me through his spirit. That's redemption. But folks we got to We've got to just focus on that word believe just for a moment. Because in our language and in our time, we have distorted the meaning of this word. We've made it this kind of simple thing that really, for many of us, it's simply a mental thing. It's simply a mind thing. Where all that's happening is, I'm agreeing, really. That's all that's happening. To say I believe in God or I believe in Jesus is simply, in my mind... I'm agreeing that that is true. And if that is your understanding of faith, you could be in grave danger. In fact, the book of James points this out, the writer of James, where he's talking about faith without works is dead. He says this very thing. He says to the people who say, well, I believe. He retorts to them, even the demons believe the demons believe and tremble. In The kind of belief that you're talking about, where you mentally agree that God exists, the, the demons do that. They're not saved. They haven't found redemption in Christ. Notice if we read on in the verse. Whoever believes in the Son. Now look at this verse 36. I hope you got it open there. Because I'm going to read it perfectly and exactly for you. Let's see, Let's see what it says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. One of the other versions of the Bible says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. See, this verse gives us a sense of what belief really means because it is far more than a mental agreement that something is or isn't true. The belief that's described by John, by Jesus, all throughout Scripture is a belief of commitment and trust. And that is why Scripture will often, in demonstrating the opposite of faith, will use words like that, rejection disobedience what is the opposite of faith well I just don't agree no it's the very reason why Jesus said why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say and in this verse Jesus could simply say why do you say you believe but you don't obey belief is a commitment of trust I entrust I love the word entrust entrust To believe in Christ is to entrust my life to him. Why would I do that? Because he's above all. He's invited me into his community of people. I can join that community through his redemption. I should entrust myself to him because of who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the bridegroom. He's he's God. And through his redemption, we have the privilege of becoming his bride by believing in him. As we move to communion, I want us to consider this last verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So here's the reality. Every human being other than Jesus who's ever lived has made the same choice that Adam and Eve have made, a choice to reject exactly what verse 36 says it's the opposite of faith we have chosen to reject God we have chosen to disobey him we've chosen to rebel against him and because we have done that a holy God has to punish is angry and jealous against those who he has made who have looked at creation and said I actually like the trees better than I like the creator we have chosen to usurp His place of authority in our lives and said no, no, I'll, I'll sit on the throne of my own life. We've all done that and because of that the wrath of God hovers over us. We are all in grave danger. To die with God's wrath hovering over us is to face an eternal punishment apart from God. I want you to look back for a moment at verse 35. The Father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands how is it possible that people like me who've sinned and rebelled against God who've rejected God for much of my life the wrath of God hovers over me how is it possible that I could ever become free of that that I could ever be rescued and redeemed and here's the way right here on the picture. It's the cross. Do you know what happened at the cross? God, who John tells us in verse 35, loves his son, turned his wrath against Jesus on the cross. And all the punishment and all the judgment that we deserve because we rejected God was poured out on Jesus that was pictured in that moment because actually the sky went black the sun went out we don't know how it happened but everything went black and Jesus feeling the wrath of God literally felt the rejection of his own father because on those, those hours on the cross the, the wrath of God was raining down the punishment of God was raining down on him until Jesus could say why have you forsaken me Say, what kind of God is a God of wrath? A holy God, a true God. And always remember this this God of wrath and judgment and holiness is a God of love because he chose to punish the Son that he loved to rescue the people who rejected him. That's love, that's mercy, that's grace. The question for you this morning is, have you believed, truly believed? Have you entrusted your life to Jesus? Because if you haven't, the wrath of God still hovers over you. You still face the consequences of your rebellion and rejection against God. But if you have trusted in Christ, your sin was transferred to the cross and in place the beauty and the righteousness of Christ was placed upon you. And so we can come to Jesus in communion absolutely secure because we know the wrath is gone and the righteousness has come through Jesus I know it doesn't look much like a meal but in communion we come together as that community the community that Jesus was creating through baptism the bride of Jesus we come and we sit at this celebration table and we share in the feast of Christ of the people of God that's what communion is And so if you've never trusted in Christ, you just need to understand, you first have to come to Christ to believe. So we would actually ask you, if you've never trusted in Christ, please don't take communion, not because you're not welcome to, you actually are, uh, but, but only when you've trusted your life to Jesus. You need to understand that this, this is an invitation for you. You could take this this morning for the very first time entrusting your life to Christ, understanding that he has taken your punishment so that you can be saved. So if you're not a believer, how about right now? And taking in the bread and the juice is such a beautiful picture of what it means to come to Christ by faith. This stuff doesn't taste very good. Sometimes I think we're pretty brave to eat this bread. I don't know what it is. But that's what it is. We take this by faith. I don't know why, but we shove this down our bodies. And when we take Jesus by faith, we take him in. We're entrusting him into our lives, and he becomes our life. I want us to take a few quiet moments. Think deeply about the wrath of God falling upon Christ. And in this moment, if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation... I want you to think deeply about why not and why not now. And if you would choose to trust in Christ right now, you are, you are welcome to join us in the feast of communion. Let's take a few quiet moments and then I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song in closing. God. We thank you for your love. No surprise that you love Jesus. Why wouldn't you? What's not to love about Jesus? He's above all. But how is it that you would love us? How is it that you'd pour out your wrath on Jesus, the one who is above all, to rescue us, so undeserving, so sinful, so broken? We thank you, Jesus for what you've done in bringing us to your table, the very table of God. Thank you that we can be part of that community. Thank you that we can be part of your bride. We give you thanks, Lord, for this bread and this juice and all that it means to us. Amen. don't have your emblems, the ushers can provide them for you. We're just going to sing a song in closing, and then Matt will be back to uh, conclude our service.
1: So John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease, and God put everything in his hands, and the, the challenge for us this morning is, are we putting everything in our own lives into his hands? I hope we can do that. All for Christ, and all for lunch. Everyone is invited, even if you aren't able to contribute, Um, but if you are able to contribute, you are supporting an incredible ministry down in Ecuador of camp, and this team that's going to go and hopefully um, help uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to change some lives, and even have their own lives changed in some way. So to be a part of that, all you have to do is show up and eat pork, and maybe give some money, Um, The food is going to be out in the uh, foyer. You're going to see it there under the skylights. You can grab your food, and you can sit. There will be tons of tables in the gym. Of course, that probably won't be enough room, so there's more room in the cafe, which is kind of like that direction. Okay, and if there's uh, not enough room there, there's room upstairs as well. It says here, room 206. We need better room names, like room 206, should be like the Awesome Room or the Great Room or the Fantastic Room. So if you want to go to Room 206 or the Great Room or the Awesome Room or the Fantastic Room, it's upstairs. So there's some stairs just out those doors. If you go up those stairs and turn right, you'll find a spot up there where there's more seating, more place where you can eat. There's going to be water in all those rooms, but only coffee and tea in the gym. I don't know why, but... If you're a coffee and tea drinker, you got to get in there, get that coffee and tea. I'm sure it's okay for you to bring it where you need to, but that's where the coffee and tea is going to be. Water will be everywhere. Uh, Information on how you can give uh, to support the Ecuador team and the camp down in Ecuador is going to be available at the food line and on the tables, and if you want a taxable receipt... I'm told you need to put your cash or check in one of the offering envelopes which are available at the tables. I'm supposed to have one and wave it around frantically to show you what it looks like. So just pretend this is one of them. Put your money in an envelope if you want a receipt for that. And uh, let's just pray and thank God for this food. Lord, thank you again for your great love for us that you demonstrated and your sacrifice for us on the cross. Lord, we are moved by what you've done for us. We are moved by that. We are so thankful that we have the opportunity to follow you. We want to put our whole lives into your hands. We want to be all for Christ. Help us to live that way. We thank you for this food that we have to eat this morning. Uh, We pray, Lord, that uh, we could be, as one whole church family, a great support to the team we're sending out from our midst to the camp down in Ecuador. Would you bless them and bless our fellowship this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. And just a reminder, there'll be some elders over there if you need prayer, if you want to drop off your family commitments, we'll be over that way. Have a great afternoon, I guess, at this point. Rest of your morning and afternoon. Bye.